Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cold Topics, a podcast for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cold Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Bridget. And I'm Colleen. Today we have a thyroid specialist on. We have Lisa Andrews, and she is the owner of Sound Bites Nutrition in Cincinnati. She has over 30 years of experience in the field of nutrition. She's the author of several books. They include the Healing Gout Cookbook and the Complete Thyroid Cookbook that we are really going to focus on today. And she's coming up with the Heart Health Meal Prep Cookbook, which will be really great too. So she also has some fun food pun swag on her website. And one of them is Lettuce Beat Hunger. And it supports those suffering from food insecurity in Cincinnati. And that's something that she feels really strongly about. But we're really happy to have her here today because I've had, I've been diagnosed with a slow metabolism, not Hashimoto's, Uh, Several of my family members have been diagnosed with Hashimoto's. I have one sister that had a thyroid that wasn't functioning whatsoever. And it's really great to have someone who's really studied and knows a lot about the function of the thyroid. So we're really happy to have Lisa on today. I think with Lisa's book, The Complete Thyroid Cookbook, I'm one of those people who tell me, make it simple, make this Mm -hmm. meal and it will help your thyroid, like A to B. Yes. And so the fact that she has about 85 different recipes in the book, but she also talks about what your thyroid is, how you can have issues, hyperthyroidism versus hypothyroidism. And there are so many women in midlife who don't even know they have a thyroid condition, that they get tested. They say, oh, these are menopausal symptoms or perimenopausal symptoms that mirror thyroid, a thyroid condition, but you don't even realize you have it. So she talks in the interview about things that you might, symptoms you might experience when you have hypothyroidism and symptoms for hyperthyroidism. And she broke it down in very understandable, easy sound bites, as she mm-hmm. likes to call yes. it. <laughs> yeah. I think our listeners will really understand and appreciate. I don't have a thyroid issue, so, which I'm surprised <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but I don't know that any every woman even has it checked. Like when you have your complete right. blood workup done in a physical, ask them, what is my thyroid level? Is it because there's a range that it should be mm-hmm. in? And mm-hmm. there are things you can do. Obviously, if it's if you're having a problem with it, there's medication available. But Lisa's a registered dietitian, so she goes based on diet. And we even kind of snuck in a little a couple of questions about perimenopause and inflammation because everything is so interrelated at this age that, you know, just give us the information. We could definitely use it in one way or another. So she was very generous to do that as well and talks about triggers for, you know, dairy. And and so we are going to let Lisa have this conversation with us so you guys can learn all about your thyroids and we will talk to you after. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics. Today, we are talking about all things thyroid. And a lot of women in midlife don't really know, number one, what the thyroid is, why is it important, what does it do in our bodies, and about the issues that might surround, the, the conditions that might surround, like hypo, hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. So we have a wonderful guest named Lisa Andrews on. She is a registered dietitian, but she also wrote The Complete Thyroid cookbook recently. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. What is your thyroid and what does it do in your body? Sure. So your thyroid is just a tiny gland that's part of your endocrine system. And your endocrine system is is a very dynamic system in your body that manages blood sugar and manages metabolism and 
hormones. And so your thyroid gland works very closely with your pituitary gland. Um, and it's located in the, in the front of your neck. It's a little butterfly shaped organ. Um, and it's, it's necessary to regulate metabolism, um, help with temperature regulation, um, also manage just normal cardiac function like um, blood pressure and um, preventing cardiac arrhythmias and those sorts of things. It's a pretty important organ. You know, a lot of women, you know, like Colleen said earlier, they don't know that something's happening with that. So can you talk about how you find out if you have an issue, what tests are taken if you have an issue with your thyroid? Sure. So I guess I should talk maybe about some of the symptoms of either hyper or hypothyroid that would sort of trigger somebody to, to get some testing done because thyroid function tests typically aren't traditionally done like things like a complete blood count or um, renal function, which checks your kidney function, you know, where they look at your blood, urea, nitrogen, creatinine. And so those are sort of some normal tests that doctors kind of check just for hydration status and make sure a person isn't anemic. So typically a thyroid function test isn't really drawn unless a person has some symptoms or some, some reasoning for, you know, for, for having that done. So typical symptoms, um, for low thyroid are things like weight gain, which can happen. I mean, we've seen a lot of weight gain over COVID, so it could be for a variety of reasons, but typically people will know um, why they've gained weight. Either they're, they're eating much more than usual or uh, activity is much less than normal. So it's kind of like weight gain without sort of reasoning. Um, hair loss, uh, temperature dysregulation, so um, feeling cold for, for no reason, um, anxiety, depression, these are all different symptoms of hypothyroidism. And then hyperthyroidism, which is less common than hypothyroidism, is elevated or hyper um, or overactive thyroid, in which case a person would lose weight out of nowhere and I always tell friends and family, you know, if you lose weight without trying, look into it because there, there's probably something metabolic going on. Now, if you lose weight intentionally because you're going to a gym or you're restricting your calories in some way, then that's a different story. But if you're either losing or gaining weight without, um, and it's probably not a bad idea to have your thyroid function checked. The symptoms that you just described, a lot of those also fall into perimenopause. So there are right. a lot of women who don't even think to have their thyroid checked. Can you have these issues with your thyroid? Is it age-related or at any age could you have a thyroid issue? So you can have it at any age, but many women are diagnosed in, in that perimenopausal um, to postmenopausal age between like 40 to 60. Um, seen um, clients that develop thyroid issues right after pregnancy, so they often see it um, in that, you know, perimenopausal phase when you're not even near menopause. Um, and part of that is just due to the fluctuation in hormones and just stress that we undergo, um, that women undergo during pregnancy and lactation. So a lot of it has to do with hormone dysregulation. Yeah. I had a sister that went through that after her first pregnancy. I think she was in her late twenties, early thirties. And one of her eyes were bulging. Is that another okay. thing that is a symptom? Yes. So that's typically seen more with hyperthyroidism, with Graves' disease. Um, and that's um, sort of a telltale symptom that something is, is wrong with a person's thyroid function. What yeah. is Hashimoto's? So Hashimoto's is autoimmune hypothyroidism, and it's really the most common type of hypothyroidism. So in that situation, someone has... Um, an autoimmune condition. And autoimmune just means that your body is 
fighting itself. So um, for some reason, normal cells are being attacked um, by the tissues in your system that cause you know, dysregulation or dysfunction in a particular organ. So for example, in um, the difference between something like rheumatoid arthritis and osteoarthritis is osteoarthritis is wear and tear, where rheumatoid arthritis is autoimmune and something is faulty in that person's immune system. So with Hashimoto's syndrome, um, the person's thyroid function is basically being attacked by their autoimmune system and, and causing dysfunction. So what are the difference, uh, the different tests that are done? Mm-hmm. So the most common test that's done is called a TSH, which is a thyroid-stimulating hormone. And when thyroid-stimulating hormone is elevated, that's actually indicative of hypothyroidism because it's, it's basically showing that that hormone is, is struggling and trying to put out more thyroid-stimulating to stimulate the thyroid. So um, it's counterintuitive because you think, oh, that level's elevated, so I must be hyperthyroid, but in actuality, you're, you're hypothyroid because your body's trying to stimulate the hormone to secrete enough to, to make the, the thyroid function normally. Um, there's other hormones that are checked. Um, there's one that's called T3 and T4. Um, T4 is thyroxine, and then T3 is kind of hard to describe. Um, pronounce. It's uh, triodothyronine. Um, and these are needed to make epinephrine, which is also known as adrenaline, which is a, a fight or flight hormone, but it also is a hormone that's um, secreted and sort of um, gives a sensation of, of feeling good or, or positive. And so um, some of that some of those symptoms of anxiety or depression could be linked to those those two hormones being a little bit off. When you first get diagnosed, is it like a straight line to medication or can you try diet to see if it'll help change? Because I know the whole premise of your thyroid cookbook is recipes that can help with the different thyroid issues. So when you go to see a doctor, you get tested, they said you have one of them. What's the next step? Typically, the next step is some some patients might be a little bit resistant to medication. So some doctors will wait um, about six months to recheck it. And so it's really up to the individual and it's up to the physician. Um, I mean, untreated, it can it can cause some some major problems. So I don't I don't want to address that because I think that's more of a medical question. Um, but certainly modifying your diet to see if it helps with some weight loss or some of the temperature dysregulation or hair loss might be beneficial. Um, but I would just say follow your doctor's advice. Sometimes a primary care physician will go ahead and treat the, the thyroid condition and sometimes the the patient will be referred to an endocrinologist, more of a more of a specialist. Yeah, I was given. Um, I was at someone who did bioidentical hormone replacement, so they would go to a compounding th- uh, pharmacy, and they gave me Nature Droid. And then when I started on it, when I went in for my next checkup, it was making my thyroid just slightly overactive, where it had been slow, then it was overactive. Mm-hmm. So it is just kind of a go back and forth, back and forth until it's regulating well. You know, they have lowered the dosage. Um, It's still slightly elevated than it had been slower. So it is something that just goes back and forth. I I think it's kind of similar to treating things like blood pressure or blood sugar, where it is going to take a little bit of time just to to 
see how your body reacts. And that's why there's different medications to treat it because some people respond to one medicine and somebody might not respond to something else. Mm-hmm. With your new book, The Complete Thyroid Cookbook, you try to connect thyroid health and food. So how does food connect with thyroid health? Yeah, it's a really good question. So particularly with autoimmune thyroid disease, um, there's certain nutrients that can sort of trigger, I don't want to say an, an allergic response, but can trigger an immune response and cause some damage to a person's thyroid function. So the thinking is that um, because autoimmune diseases tend to cluster together, so somebody with say type 1 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis might also have an autoimmune thyroid condition. And so modifying your diet sort of changes that gut bacteria a little bit, which drives a lot of your immune system um, to kind of help regulate some of these hormones a little bit better. Um, I will say the the diets in the book are very restrictive. Um, I had a hard time writing them because I'm much more of a moderate person as far as food is concerned. Um, but that's sort of what medical nutrition therapy is. We, we try it out and see if the person improves. And to me, the less restrictive that you can be, the better. So, um, if you, if you try things and it really doesn't make any difference and your doctor still recommends the medication, then maybe it's not going to change very much. But, um, you know, eating more plant-based foods and including enough protein so that a person gets enough iron that makes a difference um using iodized salt and you know we're we've become accustomed to using sea salt which is not iodized and so iodine is a really important nutrient when it comes to thyroid function so while it might be chic and trendy it's it's really not beneficial to your body (laughs) so um that's really interesting i didn't know that because everybody wants to use sea salt or flavored salts and you're saying they may not if they're not iodized they're not going to be helpful. That's interesting. So you talk about some evidence-based diet advice like paleo and autoimmune protocol and elimination provocation. Can you talk a little bit about what is elimination provocation? So elimination provocation is basically eliminating the eight most common allergens in, in your, in your diet. So things like wheat and soy and shellfish, um, and corn and eggs. So the, the most common allergens that people typically have that would stimulate some type of autoimmune response that could trigger, um, thyroid disease. So, um, with that type of diet and really with any sort of restrictions that you're trying to see if it, it triggers. So even with things like irritable bowel syndrome or, um, I mentioned rheumatoid arthritis because I have rheumatoid arthritis and I have some food insensitive or some food sensitivities. You want to keep a good food diary. So if you just sort of say, Oh, I feel crappy after I ate such and such, you want to really keep a, a detailed food diary to see like what, what is triggering some sort of reaction? Um, you know, it could be a gastrointestinal reaction such as, you know, nausea or bloating or constipation is very common with hypothyroidism, or it, it could be more of just how you feel, how you, how your mood is. If it, if it makes you more sluggish or it makes you more tired, or it makes you kind of just not, not feel like yourself. Um, so that's sort of what the elimination protocol diet is. Um, most of these, you know, 
the book says two to three weeks. I would say three to four weeks might be a little bit longer time to see more of a reaction. And then you start reintroducing foods and see if you have any sorts of symptoms. That's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the foods, because one of my nieces had a question about gluten. And uh, she said, ask if that has anything to do with, with your thyroid, uh, if a gluten intolerance. Is that something that would fall in there as well? Yes. Yeah, so, so that's that's a typical, or I don't want to say a typical, but a very common allergy is is wheat and, you know, gluten is found in wheat and rye and, and barley and oats. That is a common trigger for several autoimmune diseases. But again, we're all individuals. And so some people can eat things without an issue and other people um, are going to have some symptoms with it. Keeping a food diary, I would imagine, is really important to say how you felt after you ate something, what are you eating in a day? Right. What about paleo? You also talk about paleo in the book. Yeah, so paleo is interesting um, because it includes almost everything except for grains and dairy. And and that's a it's a pretty restrictive diet to follow. Um, but it has been beneficial for things like metabolic syndrome, um, so for weight loss, polycystic ovary syndrome, which um, some women you know, deal with infertility when they have thyroid conditions. And some of that is linked with polycystic ovary syndrome. And so that particular type of diet, because it's a little bit lower in carbohydrate, although it does allow fruit, um, might help with things like weight management and blood sugar management that are often a little bit off, particularly with with hypothyroidism. But the other thing I would ask for, and, and these are typically tests that aren't done, they're a little bit more commonly done now, but Vitamin D deficiency is very common with several different autoimmune conditions. Um, iron deficiency can be common. So those are some tests that you can ask from, you know, to, to have checked. What makes me a little nervous is when people start taking really high doses of supplements that aren't regulated. So for women, iron might not be necessarily dangerous, but in postmenopausal women, it is because typically we don't see as much iron deficiency because we don't, you know, once your, your cycles stop, you're not losing blood, so you're not losing iron. Um, for perimenopausal women, they need more iron, so um, it's probably safe to take like a women's multivitamin with iron. But for postmenopausal women, you really want to have some blood tests done first. Um, vitamin D is fat soluble, so it's not innocuous in super high doses, but it is more common deficiency. I mean, it's a common deficiency worldwide, but more, much more common in autoimmune conditions. So those are a couple tests that I would have done and then just follow your doctor's advice as far as getting, you know, taking supplements for them. So you have over 85 different recipes in the book. And my question is, if you have, if you're diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, what are some ingredients in foods or recipes that you would recommend for people who have been diagnosed with that condition? So with hyperthyroidism, typically we see weight loss, but you know, not everybody wants to necessarily gain weight back. But if you do see weight loss, some things that you could include in your diet pretty safely are things like um, avocados. So avocado is really delicious and easy to use in a lot of different recipes. Um, you can put it in pudding, which sounds weird, but it's actually that very sounds strange. <laughs> but you can put it in smoothies or you could, you could actually make, make it into pudding. So it's a higher calorie option. Protein powder is a little tricky because most of it is either soy based or whey based. And so if you're avoiding dairy or you're avoiding soy, um, you can't really use that type of thing. But for weight gain, adding oil or cooking with more oil will help kind of put on some weight um, or just eating 
larger servings of, of what you normally eat in your diet. If you're on a paleo diet, you can't really have rice, but if you're on um, the elimination provocation diet, you can have grains as long as they're gluten-free. So quinoa, uh, brown rice, potatoes, those are, those are all safe to eat and okay to eat for someone with hyperthyroidism. And what about the opposite extreme? With hypo. Yeah. So with hypothyroidism, I mean, the one thing you don't want to do is restrict your calories too much because then your metabolism, your metabolic rate is going to go down and you usually, you'll, you'll lose muscle. And so we don't want to lose muscle, especially as we age, we lose, we, there's a condition called sarcopenia that we see more commonly in the elderly, but it's basically muscle atrophy over time. So getting enough protein in your diet, but then also, you know, getting enough fruits and vegetables and, and other foods in your diet so that you meet your nutrient needs so that you're not starving. If you're um, not on the paleo diet and you can tolerate beans, I mean, beans are great because they're high in fiber and they help to maintain um, good bowel bacteria, which is also important in, in thyroid disease. So you also wrote a book called The Healing Gout Cookbook. And yes. do you find that women in midlife and beyond start to suffer from gout more frequently? So it's interesting, gout or of a men's disease than it is a, a woman's disease, although women can get gout as well. And one of the factors for gout for both men and women is obesity. So as we see people's weight go up over time, that is a risk factor for gout. So weight loss helps to prevent gout. In addition to limiting things that you think are innocuous, like fruit juice, um, there's a connection between like high fructose corn syrup and just fructose in general and the risk for gout, um, not getting enough calcium. Alcohol intake really impacts the risk for gout because it increases uric acid levels. So, so there's a lot of different dietary things that people can modify when they have gout. So a lot of the focus is on purines in food, which are typically in meat and, and seafood and like shrimp and scallops and those sorts of things. But purines are also found in vegetables, but we don't see the connection as much with vegetables, which tend to be more anti-inflammatory as we do with, with more pro-inflammatory foods like butter and full fat, you know, heavy, heavy beef and full fat dairy products and those sorts of things. Can you share some of the symptoms of gout? So gout is when you sort of wake up in the middle of the night and you have a really inflamed sore toe, or you might have an ankle that's a lot of times that it impacts your smaller bones. So in your hands or feet, um, you might see some, some swelling and just excruciating pain that is unexplained. It's not like you, you know, slammed your hand into a wall and then all of a sudden your hand is swollen. It, usually people just sort of wake up with the symptoms. Um, and then they have their uric acid level checked and, you know, just sort of a symptom history to see what else is going on there. With women that are entering perimenopause or in the late stages of perimenopause, inflammation is a big concern for them. What would you suggest as far as diet to avoid during those times or to supplement during those during that time? Yeah, so with the, inflammation is a, it's a really broad term and it affects people in different ways. So one thing I would say is reducing processed foods and particularly processed sugars. For one, it, it leads to, to weight gain and it also takes the place of other more nutritious food, but it can also alter a person's gut microbiome, which impacts their metabolism over time. Things that are anti-inflammatory, what I typically think of are plant plant-based foods. So lots of green leafy vegetables, berries, citrus fruit, melon, things that are high in vitamin C or beta carotene, carrots, 
sweet potatoes, um, spinach, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, those sorts of things, and then healthy fats. So avocados, olive oil, fatty fish, walnuts, flaxseed, those sorts of things. Those are high in omega-3 fatty acids, and those have anti-inflammatory properties. And then I would also say just limiting full fat, you know, full fat dairy products. So it's interesting about dairy products because as women age and as men age, our calcium needs go up, but there's, you know, some people can tolerate dairy, some people can't tolerate dairy, but ideally you want to get some sort of calcium source in your diet because it does impact blood pressure and it also impacts your bone health. So low fat dairy product, you know, plain Greek yogurt that's non-fat or skim milk, 1% milk, low fat cheese, those sorts of things versus ice cream and full fat cheese and full fat milk and sour cream and those sorts of things. Those are more pro-inflammatory. Dairy, a lot of people have now switched on to the almond milk, coconut milk, Mm -hmm. um, nut milk, oat milk. What do you think of those? So I think those are, I think those are fine if you have a true dairy intolerance and dairy like so for example lactose intolerance is more common in african americans and in asian population and somewhat in a latino population but if you're able to tolerate dairy that's probably your your best source of calcium and protein and vitamin d and b vitamins the benefit of something like almond milk or oat milk is that the calorie load is much lower um, but you can still get calcium from it because it's it's supplemented with calcium. The biggest difference I would say is the protein content. You're not going to get as much protein in something like almond milk or coconut milk. And then coconut milk, you're going to have typically more more saturated fat than you would with like almond milk or, or oat milk. Oat milk, you'll have a little bit more soluble fiber that you would have from oats. And, and generally, milk isn't a source of fiber. So you know, it may be helpful in that sense. If you can tolerate soy, soy milk is probably the best, I would say the best alternative or the closest alternative to dairy just because it's more nutritionally complete and has has more protein in it. What about supplements? When you're in perimenopause or in even postmenopause, are there certain supplements that you should be taking that will help you with your diet? So to me, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So if you if you're if you have a wide variety of foods in your diet and they're you're not necessarily diagnosed with a deficiency, then then for the most part, supplements really haven't been shown to be of any benefit. Now, if you have lactose intolerance or you're vegan, those are those are two to me those are two bad red flags or even vegetarian um, because you may not be getting enough. Um, iron or, or zinc or calcium or vitamin D in your diet. Postmenopausal vitamin D deficiency is probably the biggest to me, the, the, I wouldn't say the best supplement to take, but the, the deficiency that women of that age would be at most risk for, um, as well as calcium. And, you know, for, for people that have taken steroids for any reason, so, Things like solubedrol, uh, prednisone, dexamethasone. Sometimes people have to take them for a variety of things. Lung disease, cancer, arthritis. Those are common conditions that people need steroids for. Your calcium needs are going to go up because it 
it interacts with calcium balance. And so you, we see more bone loss with those types of things. You know, if you have a DEXA scan and your doctor says, oh, you have osteopenia, and you, which means, you know, mild bone loss, then you may need more calcium or more vitamin D. But across the board, I don't really recommend everybody needs to take this or everybody needs to take this particular supplement. I really, I really rely on, you know, what, what the testing is telling us and what a person's diet looks like. So if somebody comes to me and says, I'm vegan, what should I take? Then I can give better recommendations or look at a person's diet history and give them better recommendations. But things aren't innocuous. I mean, if you take too much vitamin C, it could lead to kidney stones or it, it increases iron absorption. And if you're iron sufficient, meaning your iron levels are fine and you're taking lots of vitamin C, that might increase your iron absorption, which you may or may not want because, um, too much iron does damage to your tissues because it's a it's a metal. So it's more of a risk for men to be taking iron, but even even so, if we don't need it, save your money. <laughs> yeah, and there's also a connection to your liver uh, supplements right. and your liver damage. I know that exactly. um, I've been like I was really going heavy on supplements, and they're like, oh, you've got a fatty liver, and I started cutting back and liver levels were good. Yeah. So the interesting thing with supplements is vitamin E may actually be beneficial with liver disease, particularly fatty liver disease. And then vitamin D levels, vitamin D may also be beneficial. Now, the problem with the two of those is that they are fat soluble. So they, they stay, you know, they, they stay put in your fat or they're stored in fat tissue. So really kind of getting the right amount is is what's important and not taking too much of something if you don't need it. So again, I kind of leave it up to the doctors to check levels and make sure they're within normal range. But it's interesting you mentioned liver disease because those vitamin E and vitamin D might might actually be beneficial, but again, okay. not mm-hmm. taking them in excess. When someone goes to see their doctor for a physical and you know, we're over the age of 45. Do you suggest that they ask for a thyroid test? Because I, I don't know if every doctor does give a thyroid test. I think if they're having if they're having some symptoms, like I said, of I mean, another symptom I had mentioned was high cholesterol. So if um, their cholesterol was normal for the most part, you know, most people get their their cholesterol checked at least once a year or every couple of years if it's normal. But if if they see a dramatic jump or if they're having other symptoms that might indicate that their thyroid function is off, they might ask for it. I think if they haven't had it checked ever in their life. It certainly doesn't hurt to have it checked at least once to get a baseline number, um, especially in that age group where it is more common to be, you know, more commonly diagnosed, particularly again for women. Well, we want to make sure the listeners check out the complete thyroid cookbook from you. So thank you, Lisa, for coming on the show. And we appreciate your time. It's an important conversation for women in midlife because we hear a lot from women saying, you know, I went to the doctor and I didn't even realize I had a thyroid condition. So thank you for sharing the information. We truly appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you, Lisa. I think Bridget and I both learned a lot about our thyroids and what we should be eating and what we should avoid. And also how important it is for women to get their thyroids checked in midlife. You may have already had it done, but if not, when you go for your physical ask the doctor to just check your thyroid mm-hmm. because some of the you know symptoms that you're having that you attribute to menopause may actually be something else. Yeah, I just think it's so important. I think it was really great to hear these different recipes and things that we could do with our diet with maybe not having to take so many, uh, just so much medication. 
anything right. that we can do that can help us. If, if I could just be that discipline, that is a big thing, a problem yes. with me is my discipline. Oh, I think it's but, a problem for all. I yeah. mean, at this age, I don't like being deprived of anything. Like right. I don't like someone saying I can't take this because then right. I'll... Yes, but I do. She also agreed, you know, she's a dietitian. She likes to be the least restrictive that she can because it's more attainable if you're less restrictive. But just that the advice on supplements, everything like that is just so important to share with our listeners. So we hope that you guys learned a lot on this one and make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on any podcast platform. It could be iHeartRadio, it could be Apple, it could be Spotify, you name it, Squadcast. We are on the platform. So make sure to check that out. Check our social media out and make sure you're following us on Instagram and Facebook and all those other fun things. We will talk to you next week with some more information about midlife and beyond. Until then, have a great week, guys. Bye.